Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. In this episode of Boss Files, the woman behind the famous shoes, Tamara Mellon, the co-founder of Jimmy Choo, and now her namesake brand. Her rise looks glamorous from the outside, but she opens up about feeling voiceless and powerless as she led the company. There were no women on the board, and she says she discovered she was being paid less than men who worked for her. Fast forward to the company she runs today, a mostly female staff and a female CEO who she calls life-changing. Plus, why she says retail has been turned on its head and why she's taken her brand digital first. Tamara Mellon, thank you for doing this. Oh, happy to be here. I've known your name and obviously your shoes and worn your shoes for years when you were Miss Jimmy Choo, but your story is is absolutely fascinating, so I'm glad you're here to share it with us. You are, of course, the woman behind the famous Jimmy Choo shoes and now the famous, your own brand, your namesake brand, shoes, but you're also equally if not more passionate about equality for women. So before we dive into your business background and your business story, let's just talk about the recent op-ed you wrote on Equal Payday in Forbes. One line that really struck me, you wrote, I can't think of a more important practice than showing up for yourself. What do you mean? So what I mean by that is, you know, I never valued myself enough when I, when I was when I started out my career, I didn't trust myself enough. I didn't value myself enough. And that kind of resulted in um, you know, not being paid what I should have um, and decisions in the business not being right because I didn't always speak up. I had this sense that if someone was older, had a college education, or somehow, I wrongly thought that maybe other people know better than me, mm. but it was my company at, that I founded and no one knew better than me because that whole brand was me. And now you know that, but it, uh, it took a while. It's taken 20 years. Yeah. So let's go back. You were working at Vogue. You were an accessories editor for British Vogue and you put together the last look page, everything from belts to bags to shoes. Here you have this successful career in in fashion journalism. Five years into it, you're told you've outgrown your job. Really? Yes, well, my fault. And I'm actually still really good friends with the woman that fired me, um, Anna Harvey. She's you know a fabulous woman who was at Condé Nast for her whole career. Um, 
And, you know, and I was, I, I deserved it. Um, really? I, yeah, I did. I was, you know, it was just before I went to rehab. Um, and my addiction was out of control. I was showing up late. I was going home early. I wasn't pulling it, my job together yeah. correctly. Um, and, and she was right to do it. But what it did, it, was a, it had a silver lining. It was what I needed. It was the kick up the butt I needed. Because um, straight after that, I checked myself into rehab and came out with a new determination um, that I wanted to change the course of my life, that I wanted mm. um, to build a business, and I wanted to have a successful life. Rehab. Uh, I was going to bring it up later, but you yeah, bring okay. it up now. Yeah, so might let's as well get all the skeletons out. In. <laughs> right? um, what happened? How did you get through it? Um, you know, I actually, when I checked, I checked myself in, which they said never happens. Um, so it's very rare for someone to check themselves in. They, people usually go in kicking and screaming and pushed in by their family or friends. And but I had really made a decision that this wasn't the path for me. Um, and yeah, and I decided I wanted to change my life. Mm. Why did it work? It worked because I was determined it was going to work. You know, I um, you know I haven't had a drink in 21 years since yeah. Since, since I went, I went in in August 95. Um, and I think it, it worked because I wanted to, you have to want to get well, mm -hmm. to get well. Mm -hmm. So as you started Jimmy Choo, the shoe brand uh, that became known around the world, there was a Malaysian cobbler by the name of Jimmy Choo. He would make custom shoes on short notice, right, for, for the London fashion scene, the social scene, including Princess Diana and the like. How did you first hear of him, and how did the two of you cross paths? Um, so, as a young editor um, in London in the early 90s, there was really one shoe brand in those days. Um, it was Manolo Blahnik, and the accessories kind of explosion hadn't happened yet, and there weren't, it was more about ready-to-wear and clothing than it was about accessories. Um, so as the accessories editor, I was really bored of shooting the same brand over and over again. Um, so I found Jimmy really through, just through the network of the fashion industry. There were a few other editors using him to make shoes as well. And you go down to his like Dickensian disused kind of garage in East End of London in Hackney. Um, which has now been kind of gentrified, but in those days it was really dangerous. Like his assistant got mugged for a Chinese takeaway. Wow. I mean, that's how, <laughs> that's how dangerous it was. Um, but we'd go down there and we'd get Jimmy to make things for shoots. So you'd go down and you'd say, okay, I'm doing, you know, like a Grecian story and I want a gladiator sandal and I want it in silver metallic with studs here, um, put the straps here. Um, what I didn't really realize early on in the business, when I went down to his studio as an editor, I didn't realize I was designing the shoe and he was making it. Hmm. But with Jimmy, so we get him to make things for shoots, so we'd photograph the shoes um, for Vogue and give him a credit. And that's what gave me the sort of the light bulb idea was that to get the shoes, you had to go and get them made. There was no, there was nowhere to buy them. There was no business. So you made the business. I mean, the, you, he knew how to make shoes the best that they could be. You knew the business or were about to learn the business. How do you think you two were able to come together to make something so successful 
so timeless and, and different and to break into what you said was dominated by Manolo Blahnik at the time. Well, I think there's opportunity in the market when there's only, when there's only one player, there's sure. always room for two. Um, so my, my idea was, I said to Jimmy, okay, I'm gonna go out and raise the money. I'll open stores, I'll do wholesale distribution, I'll do PR marketing because I'd also, you know, I'd done all those things mm-hmm. um, within my career. Before I was at Vogue, I'd worked for a PR company, so I had a pretty round knowledge of yeah. the industry. Um, what people don't realize is I was actually in the fashion business 10 years before I started Jimmy Choo. Mm. Um, so it pays to d- work in a lot of different areas within but the industry. But you were young. Like, I mean, were you 27? I was 27 when I started. I've been working since I was 17. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So well, I started off working on a shop floor. You know, they say, and I've seen this with so many executives and so many people that have built companies, it's having that experience that has been the key, to, one of the keys to their success. I mean, starting on the ground level. Well, people think things are an overnight success, <laughs> and they never are. If you look into people's backgrounds, you'll see what they did beforehand. They don't just start a company and suddenly, boom, it's overnight success. Yeah. You see the years of of work that they've done before. So, so let's talk about why then Jimmy Choo did take off and why it was such, such a success. I mean, you look at the late 90s, at the Oscars in 1998, Kate Winslet wore your shoes and she mentioned she was wearing Jimmy Choo. The same year, 98, Sex in the City, Carrie Bradshaw exclaims, I lost my Choo. I mean, what was it that made them catch on and resonate? It was the design and the quality. Um, there was nothing else around. So being on Sex in the City, was explosive because it turned us into a household name overnight. But the reason we were on it is because Candace Bushell came into the store the in London. The creator of Sex and the City. Yeah. She came into the store in London and fell in love with the shoes. So, so was that your aha moment hearing Carrie Bradshaw on Sex and the City? It, yeah, we didn't know it was coming, <laughs> by the way. We had no idea. We were just written into the script. Um, and yeah, it was a surprise to us as well. But this, so this is this is a really kind of key point is that it always comes back to the product. Hmm. So the product has to be good. Do you remember what it did to the business? Those moments, the Oscars, Sex and the City, do you remember what happened to the numbers, the business? I mean, how much it shot up after that? Well, turning, turning the brand into a household name made it aspirational. Um, so seeing the numbers shoot up straight away is not, wasn't really tangible. Hmm. Um, but what was what was tangible at the time was we were selling to Saks. They were our first client in America, and we could see that our sell-through rate with Saks was at something like incredible, like 90, 90 to 95%. So a brand today are thrilled if they hit a 60% sell-through. That's Meaning a, of the inventory the store uh, has. The inventory the store has, they counted on what they sell at full price wow. before they, they have to sell 60% at full price. Um, before they go on sale. And you guys had 90 to 95 We had 90 to 95 sales. At full price. Yeah. Wow. So this relationship with Jimmy Choo sounds like a marriage made in heaven, but it wasn't. I mean, you, you've written a tell-all memoir. You've been public about having a less than amicable um, relationship within the company. You were worried that infighting was going to tarnish the image. Talk to us about that and how you navigated it. Um, it was incredi- incredibly difficult because what happened early on is, um, you know, like I said, I said to Jimmy, I will do all these things in the business, you design the collection. And what happened, I went and found factories in Italy um, and I came back and I said to Jimmy, okay, give me the sketches, I'm going to go and get the shoes made. And the sketches never came. 
and they just they never came and even we even tried to encourage Jimmy to design by saying okay we'll we'll pay you for every sketch on top of what you're getting and no sketches ever came so I went to I had like complete anxiety I was like oh my god I borrowed 150 grand off my dad to start this business I'm gonna lose his money this is terrible you know so I was like waking up with night sweats um, so his niece uh, work for him and she was in his studios I saw her sketching so I said to her look can you translate my thoughts onto paper so I started doing research I started going to flea markets I started doing research on putting mood boards together and came up with a collection did he, um, he never was he never gave me one sketch for the brand so then what role did he play well that was the fallout what role did he play so we couldn't figure out what role he was going to play. He, he sold his shares in the company in 2001, right? And his niece, Sandra Choi, stayed on as the head designer. Yes. What was that dynamic like? Um, that was incredibly difficult because, obviously, she wanted to stay with the business that was growing, that she had a future with, um, and Jimmy really saw her as a traitor. Mm. Um, so what the, the issue was, you know, I went to Jimmy and I said, look, I'm designing the collection. I'm going to be honest with the editors that come in, I can't stand there and lie and say, you've done this, you know, when you have it, when, when I've done it. Um, so that was, that was incredibly difficult. So in 2001, that's when Jimmy decided to sell his mm. shares. Um, and that's how private equity came into the business. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that because <laughs> that was a challenge in and of itself. Yes. But before we move on to that, what do you think the lesson is in that for other entrepreneurs starting up that maybe their partners won't see it the way they do, won't hold up their end of the bargain. How do you navigate that? What would you tell yourself back 20, 20 years ago? Um, 20 years ago, I would have probably said to sever the relationship much quicker. Okay. Rip um, off the Band-Aid. Rip off the Band-Aid much quicker. I tried uh, for too long and too hard to encourage him. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, when you know something's not going to work, um, you, yeah. You, you kind of pull the ripcord on it quickly. And probably what I should have done early on is put Jimmy Choo by Tamara Mellon. Hmm. Um, put your name on it. Put my name on it because I think not having my name on it caused a lot of confusion. That's a smart lesson. Now your name is on it. Now your my name, name is, is on the brand. My brand. So let's talk about private equity because you start making these private equity deals and you're walking into, I assume, a room of men. Right? Mainly. Abs yes. M mainly. No, no women in private equity in 2001. Not your room, the rooms were I never, I never oh. saw a woman. And then you find out that you are being actually paid less than the men that work for you. Is that for real? That is, no, that is for real. How did you find that out? Um, so during the, during the private equity deals, obviously, due diligence is, is going on and, um, the CEO at the time, so you get, uh, there's a pot of what they call sweat equity, or in yeah. England we call it sweet equity, and my work is equal to the CEO, and we were all supposed, we were supposed to have equal pay, that was the deal. Yeah. Um, and he took uh, extra sweat equity for himself. He took 5% of the pot sweat equity, um, and then, and I had 2%. So I took this to the board and said, this is unequal, unfair. And there's an interesting lesson in what happened to you when you took it to the board. 
Tell us. Well, they really, you know, actually the, so they said to him, we want you to put it back mm -hmm. um, and then we will split this fairly at the end. He never put it back. He totally disregarded what they said. Um, and at the end, when we were negotiating um, at the end of when they were exiting that particular private equity firm, nobody would stand up for me. Um, they let him, they just let him take it. You've said that you were even judged and penalized for asking for equal pay. In what way? Um, it was, um, you know, it was, it's very, you get, it's very patronizing. So there's this sort of, um, there's this sort of idea of, of you really don't, that you, you feel undervalued, you know, you feel sort of patronized. Um, it's, yeah, that you're almost not respected for the work that you're doing, and particularly for the creative side of the business. Um, there seems to be a lack of respect from private equity. They don't mm. understand how important uh, the creative process mm. is to a luxury just brand. Just looking at the numbers, just looking at the yeah, business side. Yeah. All right, so we'll, we'll get into that pay equity issue in a moment, but before I move on to that, I do want to talk about sort of your childhood and what led you um, up to this because you had a very difficult childhood that you write about in a very candid memoir. You know, in 2013, you penned this and you were very open with all of it. You mentioned your father, who you had a strong relationship with, who, who gave you the seed money, the $150,000 to start the company. First, talk about your relationship with, with your father and how he helped you because he was a business guy. He helped build Vidal Sassoon. What did he teach you? Um, so there were so many great lessons just from being around him. So, you know, my father was kind of really like sort of the rock in my life. Um, you know, without him, I don't think I probably, I would have survived. Um, survived? Survived my childhood. Wow. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, he was an absolute rock and he was my mentor and probably biggest supporter. Um, there were so, there were so many business lessons, you know, he, he actually didn't believe in college. Um, he believed starting something from the ground up. He believed in college if you want to do something specific, like if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer. Um, but if you want to be an entrepreneur, he was like, just get out and work. Um, he doesn't think anyone can teach you how to do that. Why do you say you don't think you would have survived your childhood? Um, you know, I grew up with a mother that was clearly um, extreme narcissist, alcoholic, um, incredibly abusive. Um, and I think that also really affected my ability to study at school. Um, you know, it, it was incredibly hard to focus. Um, I couldn't retain information. So I actually ended up leaving school with no qualifications because when you're that stressed as a kid all the time, you, your brain doesn't have unlimited resources or amount of energy. So when your brain is focused is always hyper alert on survival. Mm -hmm. There isn't enough energy to study. You write about your mom hitting hitting your head uh, when you were a child. I mean, I it's heartbreaking. Um, where was your father in all this? How did he save you? Um, so, yeah, the incident you're talking about is probably so. My first memory in life is being thrown across the bed um, and hitting my head 
on the radiator as I hit the floor on the other side. Um, so obviously my father was at work. Um, he worked a lot when we were young, so he was not at home to see a lot of this. Um, and he traveled for work. You know, they were building Fidel Sassoon in the early days, and there was a lot of travel involved. Um, but he, um, you know, but I felt incredibly loved by him. Um, you, you could feel his warmth, his nurture, his encouragement. So I think, you know, it kind of takes one good parent. I think if you have one good parent, um, mm -hmm. you're going to be okay. Mm. Um, you say you didn't, gra so you didn't graduate high school then? No, I left school with no qualifications. With none. Has that hurt you at all probably, in your career? It, it, it hasn't hurt me in my career, but it's probably hurt my self-confidence more. So now... Even now? Even, even, even now, you oh. know, so I always, so like with my daughter, um, you know, I'm really obviously encouraged. Minty, right? Minty. Let's look great name. Yeah. <laughs> so her real name is Araminta, but I've called her Minty, uh, Minty Mellon since she was born. Um, so Minty, absolutely, you know, I encourage her um, to go to college, do well. She wants to go to college, get an MBA. Um, she's a straight A student. She's an honors class. She gets A's in her honors class. Uh, yeah. So, oh, and I think it's, you know, if just for um, confidence. So like mm. when I walked into a board meeting at Jimmy Choo, I felt if I'd had that MBA in my pocket, I probably, I would have had a level of confidence. That's interesting. Even now, given all your success, the confidence issue. Issue. Yeah, it still exists. But you know, a lot of women have this. So of course. They call it imposter, imposter syndrome. syndrome. Of course. So, I think yeah, we've all know. lived yes. it. Yes. We all have it. Of course. We think that we're not worthy of the title or the accomplishment, oh, sure. that, that they must have gotten something wrong. wrong. Yes. I always felt like someone was kind of knock on my door and go, you didn't really do that, uh, do did you? Do you still feel like that? I still, I still feel like that. Wow. Your father died in 2004, and you wrote about it, saying that he was such a force in my life, and his passing left a power vacuum like the death of an ancient king. From now on, I was going to have to fend for myself without his protection or his advice. That's been 13 years now. Yes, unbelievable that so much time has gone by. So, and, and it was really the vultures came out when he died. It was, um, it was, it was unbelievable. So, I went, I went through a run of like f five years that was incredibly tough because 2004 my father died. 2005, I got divorced. Um, 2006, there was a hostile takeover attempt on the business. And then 2009, I ended up in court with my mother. So I had this run of just, I just went from one crisis to the next. Mm -hmm. um, yes, that was, that did was you, a Did tough. you think about him a lot during that time? What he would have said, what he would have done? I mean, I know. It was, my, it was the one thing. It was the reason I didn't give up because I would think about him. Mm -hmm. I think about that. I, I lost my dad when I was young. I was 15. Oh, but I think young. about yeah. him so much in what I do now. I mean, he is yeah. still so much a part of my life and my decision-making process. Do you find that with your father as you make decisions today, as you raise your daughter? Uh, absolutely. I mean, when I was going through, particularly like the CEO tried to do a hostile takeover of the business and kick me out, um, which I eventually won, but I was kind of fighting that on my own. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was something in my head, and this may sound corny and silly, but I remember 
when I was a kid, my dad used to look at me and he used to say to me, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that kind of, that was kind of like a mantra that I had, and that's what got, through, what got me through it. So let's talk about running an empire, a shoe empire as a woman these days and what you face going through. Did you raise money? I know you had the seed funding from your father. Did you have to go out into the market and raise money as well? No. So Jimmy Choo is an incredible story. Um, so nobody ever actually invested in the business. We grew completely from cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and what private equity did is they came in and they, they bought shares. So they were owners in the business, but they never put capital in the business. Mm-hmm. What they actually did, they put a lot of debt against the business. And we had to pay the interest on their debt and grow from cash flow. And you did it. And we did it. You've gone through a lot, uh, obviously personally, as you've just described, but also professionally in terms of cycles in the business. Three private equity deals, four corporate sales, and you've said there's a misconception about all women who work. What do you mean? Even today, 2017? Unfortunately, and I think that's why we see this uh, feminist movement at the moment. Um, I think that during the uh, 2009 crash. Um, I think that was a huge wake-up call, whether women are really conscious of it or not. Um, But I predicted at that time then that there would be a women's movement post the Depression. Um, Because I think what happened, we realized if there were women in leadership positions, that actually that wouldn't have happened. So all those bad mortgage debts um, wouldn't have happened. You think if women were running Wall Street's biggest banks, there would never have been a financial crisis? I, th- I, re- I do believe that. I think that if, if there were more women in leadership roles, um, we wouldn't have gone through that crisis. But so what do you mean when you say that, that you know, people look at, at women, there's a misconception about all women who work? What do you mean by that? So I think that there's a misconception in the sense that people think that you're a diva, you're tough, you're, um, you know, you're, you're, all, you're cold, you know, you're, you're all these things which are so, are so misguided because we, we now know that, you know, women run businesses with a very different mindset. Mm-hmm. So for instance, a woman will come to a negotiating table um, with the mindset of wanting everyone to win. She's not going to the negotiating table to annihilate the person across the table. Um, so she's a lot fairer in her thinking, and she wants everyone around the table to win. You've said there are so many times in your life when you have felt voiceless and powerless. I think for people listening to this who know your brand, who know your product, who see the success on the outside from you would be really surprised to hear that. Um, yeah, absolutely. So if you think about it, I had uh, Jimmy Choo. I had uh, my whole board was private equity guys. Um, and this was a lesson to myself. So if I could look back and tell my younger self now, I would have said, speak up, right? Get some women on the board. Get some people who actually... Demand it. Yeah, dem- yeah demand it. Actually, we, how, could, how is it possible that I was the only woman on the board of something 
that is selling the most feminine product to women, you know, that it's, it was a brand for women. Do you think, I mean, obviously, Jimmy Choo's success speaks for itself as a brand, but do you think it would have been even more successful had you had more female voices in power on the board? Yes. You do? Uh, absolutely, because there are certain things that, that would never have happened if there were women on the board. One, um, they wouldn't have lowered the quality of the product because women would have understood that 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 hurts the business, the long-term business. Women know the quality of a shoe. So when they decided to lower the quality to increase margins, I, I think women would have voted against that. Um, and there's, you know, there's, there was a whole bunch of examples like that that I think hmm. um, would have been prevented. Have, yeah. So when you went to the board and you said, look, I, you took the, the discovery to them, you said, look, I've, you know, I, I'm not being what you thought was fairly compensated, justly compensated, that men working for you were making less than you. Um, that is when you talk about having your first real salary negotiation. How did that go? Um, not great. <laughs> 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 oh, I didn't really get anywhere. <laughs> really? Um, I didn't really get anywhere. I didn't get any, get anywhere through all the private equity deals. And then particularly um, at the, the last sale to a strategic, I uh, gave them a lot of proof of what was fair market mm -hmm. for someone at my level uh, in the business. Um, I gave them my competitor's compensation, and I was probably you know, 70% below what my competitors... 70. 70% uh, below. So you've said, and you wrote this in your opinion piece recently, negotiating your worth and compensation is not something that should live behind close, closed doors. You're out publicly talking about this now. You penned an op-ed. Do you think, tomorrow that enough public, powerful women are out there talking about this and doing this in public? I think if we destigmatize. Um, keeping your remuneration private. You, you think we should all talk about what we make? I, I think we should. And I think because you can only have an increase by comparison. Um, it's an interesting point. I've heard the argument made. You've also written that our, until our culture can embrace the simple fact that equal work is worth equal pay, women will always be asking for permission. Do you think in 2017, or why? Clearly, you think. So, why do you think in 2017 our culture is not fully embracing that belief? I think, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know when, why we're not embracing that belief. Um, but we, what we do know is we know that society is better off when women earn equal. Mm -hmm. uh, women actually give more back to their community. Um, the men do. They're more charitable. Um, we have better childcare. You know, so as a society, we are actually better off when women are paid. We all uh, second guess ourselves to some extent, or most people do. And you give some advice and you say to other women and to other entrepreneurs out there if you wait to be the most person in the room, you'll never feel qualified. What do you mean? Because we're sort of waiting to... I'm not, you know, if you're not the best? Yeah, then don't do it. But I think just, you just got to speak up and go for it. Um, 
And that's what I often tell myself now, you know, if I could look back at my younger self, I would say, just speak up, you know, just don't wait for the don't wait for the perfect moment or the perfect thing or thinking that you've done everything you can. Mm -hmm. um, just speak up. Your mother, as we talked about, what do you as you talk to your daughter about this as she's I'm sure read your book and learned from your lessons. What do you hope she will look back and say about you one day in terms of the part you've played in this fight? Um, I hope she'll be. I hope she'll be incredibly proud. Um, you know, I'm always teaching her that how important it is to work to have your independence and your freedom. Um, so I hopefully she'll be proud. You know, I'm constantly still with her guilty that I hope, I hope she's not going to be really pissed off with me for missing some event at school. You know, it's that balance that every working mother has. I you hate know. that word. Yeah. I do, I, it's too hard. I call it's it melding. You have to meld your work, work and your yeah. life and your life yeah. and your work because how to balance, I don't know, at least I haven't figured it no out. One, no, people always ask me how I have and I haven't figured it out yet. I'm always guilty. I'm guilty. Um, when I'm at work, if I'm not with her, then I'm guilty. If I'm with her, then I'm not at work. <laughs> so there's been a lot of discussion recently, and I'm glad to see it about uh, the role the government should have or shouldn't have in, in paid parental leave. What's your take on the importance of that as a discussion in the United States right now about paid leave, helping women so they don't drop out of their careers or don't reach their, their highest goals? I think, it's I think it's incredibly important to support women, um, to have paid leave, you know, bonding with your child. Uh, and I should say men too, paid parental leave for uh, men yeah, and, and women. For me and for men too, it's bonding with your child um, is so incredibly important for the child's health. Um, so if we want a healthier society in whole, we will, su we will support that. Is it incumbent on companies to do that or is it incumbent on the government to provide that? I think, I think companies actually should be able to provide it. Obviously, small, young, startup companies, you know, it's, that can be a burden on the company with, you know, when you're really kind of cash flow is really important. You only have few employees. So if you have 10 employees and one of them is out, that's 10% of your workforce. So maybe the government um, needs to backstop so, it then? So there, may, so there may be a, up to a company of a certain size that they help, and then beyond that mm. size, the company can afford to do it. So let's talk about your company right now, what you're doing right now. Uh, other than me complaining about how my shoes are so uncomfortable, <laughs> you're focused on fashionable, but also shoes that women can actually walk throughout the day in. I am not wearing one of your, your shoes. You have you did a relaunch of your namesake brand, and then you say it wasn't executed the way it should have been. And now you've relaunched again, but after you took that company through bankruptcy, purely digital. What does that tell us about women who buy shoes? Are the are the malls or the big department stores not important anymore? Are they going to be extinguished? Yeah, I, I'm afraid so. I mean, we see them in free fall right now. So the reason that I. I, um, I put my the first iteration of this brand, the reason I put it through Chapter 11, because I was an early adopter of what they call buy now, wear now. Mm -hmm. um, and I had so many great learnings from the first three years. So, you, so I actually don't see it as a failure. I see it as the most incredible learning 
um, to get me to where I am today. So being an early adopter of Buy Now, Wear Now was too early for department stores. And what I learned is you cannot put it through a wholesale channel um, because they weren't, they weren't they, they just weren't set up for it. Buy Now, Wear Now. Just explain to people what that means. It, oh. It's the difference of seeing it on the catwalk and then being able to buy it three months, six months later. Yeah, so, so what happened to the industry is when I was a young editor going to fashion shows, the only people that went to fashion shows were press and buyers. So the customer saw the product when it was on the shop floor and in a magazine at the same time. So it had this big reveal moment. So it made it exciting because it looked new and fresh and you wanted to go out and buy it. What happens now um, with the digital revolution is that the customer sees the fashion show as they ha mm -hmm. as it happens. Mm -hmm. But it still takes us, fashion companies, six months to get that product to the shop floor. So when you've looked at something for six months, there's a kind of fatigue around mm -hmm. it by the time it comes in. You're not excited to go and buy it. So what, what buy now, wear now means is it's closing that gap. Um, and so we know that people really, they want to buy something today and they want to wear it tomorrow. Um, but unfortunately, when they've seen the fashion show, um, and the product hits the floor mm -hmm. six months later, they've moved on. You talk about the next generation of luxury brands, and you say the next generation of luxury brands will not be built the way that I built Jimmy Choo. What is so different about being a designer and an entrepreneur in the fashion industry today? What is the most stark difference? So the way I built Jimmy Choo is we used to build luxury brands through wholesale and retail. Um, and no brand will be built like that again. Michael Kors was pro probably the last one to get in um, just before the change happened, just mm. before the change happened. Um, so brands, I think the next generation of brands will be built digitally. They'll be built with um, e-commerce first um, and retail second. So we do see some of the digitally led brands like Warby Parker um, opening stores but they're digital first. Mm -hmm. And I think what we And that's what you're doing here. And that's what I'm doing with my brand. And, and people are willing to buy shoes for five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars online. Women buy everything online. If you think about it, Net-A-Porter was founded in 2002. So women have been buying luxury goods online since 2002. What's happened now, the reason we're at crisis point is that Nobody goes out to a department store anymore. Everyone's buying online. I, I do. Sometimes. Rarely, <laughs> though. I mean, having a one-year-old at home, it's hard to find any time between work and, you know, to go. Much easier to have delivered to your home. Yeah, and if you can return it for free, that has Absolutely. become... Yeah, and, yeah, the returns now are painless. What about running a business as you've relaunched this brand in what I would call the Instagram economy, that a lot of people refer to it that way? You know, yeah, I mean, so, how does that change things for you? Um, so what what I love is I have a direct communication with my customer. Um, so before there was always a third party in between us. So whether it was um, a department store was the third party giving us feedback on our customers. So you've got to think about how long that feedback loop is. It can be up to a year mm -hmm. before you actually get feedback. Right now, we talk to our customers every day. Do so you? Do you on so social I, media? I do. So sometimes I'll go on Instagram and I'll answer people's questions. Um, and they'll tell us exactly what's going on. So all our advertising today is really through Facebook and Instagram, oh, Pinterest. Wow. So it's no, all digital. No more buys in Vogue, physical no, magazine? No more buys in traditional print. Wow. Um, because what we realized, it actually doesn't move the needle. 
um, it doesn't convert into sales. You write, almost every mistake I've made in business has come from not trusting myself. Do you yes. trust yourself this time around? I do, and I'm very, very conscious of that. Um, and I really listen to my intuition and my gut, um, and, and I'll act on it now. So before, whether I'd waver thinking, oh, maybe someone else does know better, if I feel something really strongly, yeah, um, yeah I'll absolutely act on it. You write, as a woman who has spent her life in the luxury industry, I can tell you luxury isn't about expensive things. It's about getting what you want. Have you gotten what you really want? I do now. I have, um, I have incredible investors now who understand. Assume there are some women included in that. There are. <laughs> um, so I'm working with a VC firm called NEA who, um, unlike private equity, they have a completely different worldview and mindset about the companies they invest in, mm -hmm. um, and they're incredibly supportive. I have a female CEO, um, which has been life-changing, um, and she is an absolute rock star. Um, and we pretty much have predominantly female team. Um, we have three men on the team um, at the moment. Um, but we pretty much have a female team, and we're really running the business um, the way we want to run it. So we'll end on this, a fun note. I have read that your partner, Michael Ovitz, does not allow you to wear shoes in the house. <laughs> Is this correct? <laughs> the irony of that, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to get little slippers made that say ironic, I know. Um, yes, yeah, so he has a no-shoes policy in his home. All right, well, there you go. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook. Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Ben Mankiewicz. On this season of The Plot Thickens, we're exploring the world of renegade movie director John Ford. Ford was a living legend, a cinematic giant, and also a notorious egomaniac who could unload on actors. You'll hear from the best of them, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, even Ricardo Montalban. Find out how Ford's legacy survives his personal demons. The Plot Thickens, Decoding John Ford, hosted by me, Ben Mankiewicz. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.